Uh, so good to see you, especially if you're a guest this morning, your family member or in town visiting folks or if you're joining us on the podcast today. We're in the middle of a series called Messiah's Songs. We're looking at the Psalms of Christmas in our scripture passage. The passage on which the teaching is based is going to be from Psalm 88 this morning. So you can open your Bibles there or follow along on the screen. You know, if you would get out maybe a pen or a paper or something to write with and who knows against all odds, you just may get something out of this. All right. Psalm 88, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off. From your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flock. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. That's God's word this morning. And Merry Christmas to you all. (laughs) Yeah, this month we're looking at the Psalms of Christmas. They're a selection of Psalms that point us to the meaning of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. And, you know, on one hand, the Psalms are, in a real sense, they're, they're the original Christmas carols, as they were originally composed, you may know, as Hebrew poetry and Semitic song. And yet, on the other hand, we come to a psalm that would arguably be voted least likely to ever be sung at a Christmas Eve service. It's Psalm 88, which is realistically the, the bleakest and darkest psalm and passage in the Bible. You know, when you read through almost all the other psalms that begin in a similar place, in a place of discouragement, they almost all manage to end in a place of hope. They always say something like, you know, though I've been downcast, yet the Lord will raise me up. Though I've been in darkness, I'll walk in light. Though shadows upon me, yet I'll break my way through somehow. But here, there's nothing like that. There's no mention of hope. There's no illusion to break through. There's no eye towards God's deliverance or salvation. No, there's only one word mentioned three times in the passage. And the word, the very last word in the psalm, in the Hebrew, it's the word darkness. The word darkness. So let's ask, what in the world is this psalm doing in the Bible? What good could looking at this possibly do us? The answer is this. It will do our hearts quite a lot of good today to dive down to the bottom of this psalm and reap what God has planted there for us. What do we reap from this cry of darkness? Four things, actually, that we need to live. Four things we need to live. First is authentic prayer. Second, deep wisdom. Three, proven strength. And finally, resurrection faith. We'll look at each of these in turn. Let's begin here. Number one, authentic prayer. Let's look at verses one and two when it says and begins, Lord, you are the God who saves me. 
Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. So let's ask now as we begin, what is prayer? What is it? What's prayer? Well, among other things, prayer is not only what the way that Christians have for centuries communed and communicated with God. Prayer is also a discipline that Christians have practiced to process their emotional lives. It's a practice, it's a process to practice their emotional lives. All right, so what do these two verses show us right from the get-go? Well, they show us, as we've been saying, that our culture today gives us almost no resources for processing our emotional lives in a healthy way. And because of this, the Psalms, and especially Psalm 88, at a fundamental level, is not just a nice pick-me-up to be read at a special occasion. They are culturally offensive shots across our emotional bow. You ask, well, how is that? Well, the Psalms are offensive primarily in two ways. First, they're offensive to conservative, you know, religious church culture, which says when it comes to how to handle our emotions, conservative church culture, by and large, says this. Stuff it down and get over it. Stuff it down and get over it, right? Conservative church culture really for centuries has believed that an authentic spiritual life ought to look like one of constant joy, and joyful, unflinching acceptance of the will of God. The problem with this view is, if we're not careful, and I know what I'm about to tell you is true because it's been true in my life, that this view can be turned into a subtle form of legalism where we get God to do what we want Him to do in the end if we've been good little boys and girls and don't complain, see? But the Psalms are also deeply offensive to modern liberal culture, which says, on the other hand, don't bottle your invention, uh, excuse me, don't bottle your emotions. That would be unhealthy, right? To put a filter on is, would not be the way to go. What's healthy is to get out there and, you know, ventilate your soul, go on a talk show, uh, jump on your couch, get on Facebook and share your deepest thoughts. You know, the ones that you've never even shared with your mom or dad or best friend. Go on to Facebook and put those out for complete strangers to see. Because that's, you know, totally healthy and totally normal, right? Go on Twitter and in real time rant how you feel about life. Don't stuff it, share it, share it. But the Psalms show us that an authentic spiritual and emotional life is composed not of just stuffing down how we feel on one hand or of sort of spraying it out on others on the other hand, but that an authentic spiritual person will be a person who constantly and consistently prays their emotions praise their emotions let me ask you do you do this do you pray how you're feeling your emotions see both of those other approaches are quite simply ditches many christians today are so bound up they're pre-committed to not showing emotion not getting involved emotionally and never raise their hands in church no no crying in church you know sort of like tom hanks in a league of their own there's no crying in church but there's no way many of these people have the ability to communicate how they feel There's no way their wife or children or friends even feel loved by them. See, that's not biblical. That's just cultural. And some Christians, on the other hand, are so committed and honestly addicted to Facebook therapy, there's no way they have time to pray. You you can track their posts every so often. I mean, how can you have time to pray? Let me ask you, do you pray? Do you pray how you're feeling? Or do you just post how you're feeling? Hmm? Pray how you're feeling or just post how you feel. Don't tell me you're just keeping it real. And really, you're just keeping it from God. See, that's not biblical. That's just cultural. And here's the problem with both of these approaches. Both are using something, either silence on one hand or shouting on the other, to keep a safe distance from God. Neither approach brings true health to the soul or true intimacy with God. 
J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, says this. He says, quote, Knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. Knowing God is more than just knowing about Him as He opens up to you and being dealt with by Him. Friends open their hearts to each other by what they say and do. We must not lose sight of the fact that knowing God is an emotional relationship as well as an intellectual and volitional one. And could not indeed be a deep relationship between persons if it were not so. And before we move on, let me just give you a brief case study to illustrate what I'm talking about and what I believe Dr. Packer means. Consider the case study of the life of the patriarch Job, a man who lived through trauma beyond imagining. Job over and over again cries out to God in agony, over and over again. And, and, and by the end of the book, of course, you see what happens to him. He never walks away from God. He never denies God's existence because of what he's going through. Now, again and again, and some of you would say, and again. If you've read the book, all 42 chapters, again he brings his complaint to God. And yet, and yet, Job hates what he's going through. He hates what he's going through. He doesn't like it. And he makes it known. He doesn't keep a stiff upper lip before God. He doesn't pretend to love God's will. And he lets God have it. But what happens next? Oh, the skies cloud over, right? God himself appears to Job and recounts in detail his power, how he sustains the world, how he created the cosmos. And by the end of the book, Job has a breakthrough, doesn't he? Job is humbled by what God has shown him, and he prays an incredible prayer of repentance and worship. What had happened? Oh, it's beautiful. Job, because he never stopped praying how he felt, came to see God more clearly, and so he began to change in dramatic ways. His prayers, Job's prayers, both moved God to action and changed his own heart and life. What had he done? Job simply had prayed his pain. He prayed his pain. He didn't distance himself from God because of of what he was going through. He's not like many of us who say, God, because I'm really going through it, because I don't like my circumstances, because this or that's happened to me or not happened, I'm going to keep my distance from you, and I've got the right to not talk to you or relate to you. Job doesn't do that. Nor does he, on the other hand, just say, you know what? This is just me being me. God, I can complain and say whatever I want to and get away with it. You've got no right to check me or my emotional state. It's just Job being Job, right? No, he doesn't do that either. He kept praying his emotions. He kept praying his pain. And the more he prayed in the middle of his trial, the more clearly he saw God and the more deeply his life was changed in the end. Let me ask you, do you pray like that? Hmm? That's authentic prayer. That's authentic prayer. That's keeping it real. And this is where where Psalm 88 begins. Oh Lord, hear my cry. Hear my cry. Do you pray like that? Does God hear your cry? Or does Facebook hear it? Hmm? Does God hear your cry? Or do you turn away from him and keep it inside when the darkness comes? Hmm? But if you'll pray this way, church, like Job did, authentic prayer, it can move you into number two, the second thing we need to live in what Psalm 88 gives us. It gives us number two, deep wisdom. The psalmist moves on. Let's look at verse 3 here. And he goes on to say, I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Now, catch all those metaphors there. Hmm? Look at what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, I feel overwhelmed by my life. I feel powerless to do anything about it. Like I'm lying in a casket forgotten by you, God. Though somehow, somewhere, you've said you love me. 
So what's the lesson? Mm, it's twofold in this. It's an amazing lesson of wisdom. It's twofold. Psalm 88 tells us these things. First, it recalibrates our expectation of how life goes. And secondly, it reaffirms our hope of who God is. Let me show you. First, it recalibrates our expectation of how life goes. You ask, how is that? Well, simply this. Psalm 88 shows us that even those who pray, even those who love God, even those who follow Him, who are in a committed relationship with Him, go to church, lead a community group maybe, read their Bibles, can many times and often will struggle with profound periods of deep darkness. See, expectations in life are everything, aren't they? You ought to say amen to that. And wrong expectations can be deadly. And I see this all the time, for example, with couples who are about to get married. And there's a few in here. And our dear friend Jamie Smith on staff with us is about to get married next month. We're excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie just got your invitation in the mail yesterday. Thank you very much. Um, Appreciate that. Maybe some of you see this too. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's like, you know, with uh, an engaged couple, like this invisible, elastic tether that they won't allow them to go more than like 10 feet apart from each other. And when they get more than 10 feet, there's like an internal sensor radar thing that goes off and the thing snaps them back together so they can hold hands and look deeply into each other's eyes with longing and affection. And, and of course, you know why they do this. They can't imagine it being any other way forever and ever. Amen. And in a sense, of course, it shouldn't be any other way. It ought to be like that. But fast forward 10 years, maybe 20, 30, and if that same couple has made it you know their physical interaction is just going to be different. What happened? Well, to a certain degree, familiarity set in. But in reality, what happened? Reality happened, didn't it? Yeah, reality happened. Issues, fights, multiple children, screaming babies, sicknesses, pain, heartbreak, job loss, etc. Now, if that same couple continue to have the same level of expectation of sizzling romantic physical connection and interconnectivity, those butterflies in the stomach that were there at the beginning, what would happen if they continue to expect that after all that? At the same level, well, you'd have what our culture has today, a significant rise in adultery and divorce. See, see Carrie and I, we've been happily faithfully, mostly happily, married for uh, almost 14 years. She's beautiful, amazing. We know each other better. We love one another more than when we said I do. And honestly, our level of intimacy is better than it was when we first got married. But you know what? Our relationship is different. And how we feel about each other is different. But do you know why, I believe, we've been able to handle these difficulties and challenging times? Here's why. It's because we expected them right from the get-go. We had great mentors in our lives who said, you know what? Expect there to be problems. Don't be thrown by the pain. Challenging times are normal. And Carrie actually had to live this out just two weeks into our marriage when she was dealt a devastating blow by me when I accidentally threw away the rose petals that lined the altar up at our wedding ceremony. Her cousin collected them had them pressed and, you know, dehydrated and put together and mailed them in the mail and she would carry one home and I threw them away. The symbol of our love went in the dumpster, you know. She forgave me. She knew what she was getting into, right? This sort of absent-minded professor guy. All right. 
Listen, your expectations in life are everything. That's the point. If you expect to get from Dallas to Austin on a holiday weekend in three hours, you're crazy, right? If you expect that, you'll lose your salvation, if that were possible, over some guy who just cuts you off, you know, when you're not even moving. He'll go in front of you ten feet. Who cares? But you're so angry. Why? Because you expected a three-hour trip, a three-hour tour, right? But you're not getting it. But if you set your expectations at, what, five to six hours, you'll say, hey, let him on in, right? Now, the trip is managed. It's manageable. You won't be thrown. And in our modern Western culture today, with low mortality rates, long life expectancy, and technological conveniences our forefathers could never have imagined, we are utterly devastated when any form of prolonged difficulty or pain comes into our life or business or our marriage. You may ask, well, Morgan, what about those verses? You know, the ones Christians always trot out and quote when stuff's going bad. You know, that God's always working things for good for those who love Him. What about the promise that He will be faithful to complete the good work He started? Let me tell you something. Those verses are in there, and they're all true. Today, as you sit here, God is working all things for your good because you love Him and you're called according to His purpose. He is and will be faithful to complete the good work He began in you and in us. But the Bible does not promise ever that you will always know why things are happening the way they are. They just won't. You know, if you read the end of the book of Job, he never finds out why he went through what he went through. We do. We have the advantage of the reader. But Job never finds out. The Bible never promises that God will come through and is working on your timetable the way you want it. This is true. See, there's deep wisdom in this psalm that shows us even the most devout and loving follower of God may have times of utter darkness when the presence of God may be unable to be felt. Let me ask you, can you handle that? Hmm? Can you deal with that? Can you recalibrate your expectations to fit in with the Bible in Psalm 88 rather than recalibrating the Bible, see, to fit in with your expectations? No, we recalibrate our lives, of course, to fit in with the Bible. Second, Psalm 88 also, and thankfully, reaffirms our hope of who God is. Look at verse 15 here. The the psalmist goes on. He says, From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Look what he's saying here. It's pretty harsh. He's saying, Even since I was a child, ever since I was a kid, God, you've never been there for me. You've never been there for me. You've never helped me. I've always been on my own. Oh, I mean, what kind of language is this, right? I mean, he's not speaking reverently, is he? He's not speaking respectfully. He's not even speaking realistically because, as we see, we'll see in a minute, the psalmist is actually a pretty important person. But here he says, God, you've never been there for me. And at the end, when he writes, darkness is my closest friend. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, God, the darkness, the pain of my life is a better friend to me than you've ever been. Man. It's pretty harsh. But this almost blasphemous speech, let me tell you, it only serves to make this psalm sweeter and God's grace more visible in the end. How? Hmm. Derek Kidner has a great two-volume commentary on the psalms, and his commentary on Psalm 88 is great. He says this in this one line. It's beautiful. He says, The very presence of these prayers in Scripture bears witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. See? You see what God's not saying here? He's not saying, I don't want to be associated with anyone who doesn't have it all together. He's not saying that. He's not saying, I don't want anybody hanging around me and using my name who doesn't keep a stiff upper lip. No. 
God leaves this psalm, of all psalms, Psalm 88 in the Bible. It means he knows our frame. He knows our weakness. He's saying, I'm still your God. I still love you. No matter how much you insult me or treat me or speak about me, I'm still in it with you. It's beautiful. Let me ask you, is Psalm 88, let me ask you, put it like this, is the God of Psalm 88, rather, the God you know? Is that the God you know? Is the God of Psalm 88 the God you grew up with and were taught about and learned about? I hope so. Listen, our deepest hope and need, actually I'll put it like this, my deepest hope and deepest need in life is this, that God is really like that, that he can handle my ups and downs and my flaws and my pains and my failures and my sins, and that even when I treat him in a way he doesn't deserve, he still treats me better, he's still in it with me to the very end. And let me tell you, the very presence of these prayers in the Bible shows us we have a God like that. Like that. Oh, church, there's deep wisdom here for us. This psalm recalibrates our expectations of life and reaffirms our hope of who God is. I hope you can say amen. So now, now, if we'll put these two concepts that we've seen first together, authentic wisdom and deep wisdom, let me show you, because I will, the kind of person I believe this psalm promises, or at least hints at pretty strongly, the kind of person you and I can be turned into. The promise of this psalm is that you can become, number three, a person of proven strength. A person of proven strength. Now, as I've read this and studied this, you know, commentators over and over again, uh, when, they, when they comment on this psalm, they draw parallels, as we've done this morning, between this psalm and the book of Job. Now, why is this? Why do they keep referencing Job? It almost, you know, it's almost comical uh, at a point. Well, what was the central question of the book of Job? Hmm? The very thing that launched the book of Job in the first place. Well, the question at the heart of the book of Job is the question that stands at the heart of this psalm, and it's what Satan, of all beings, asked God in Job 1. He asked God, he says, Will a man serve God for nothing? Hangs over the whole book. What's Satan hinting at? Well, he's saying, you know, God, all those people on earth, all those ones who say they love you, they're only doing it because they think it pays. Think it pays. They're only serving you, only living upright lives, only going to church, only giving, only living a righteous life because they think there's something in it for them. Take away everything from them, though, God. Take away their breath. Take away their family, their money, their business. Let them experience pain and death, and especially after they cry out to you in their darkest moment, don't answer their prayer, and we'll see what kind of people they really are. Hmm? Remove your hand, God. Plunge them in the darkness, and we'll see what's really in a human heart. You'll see, God, they're all in it for themselves, right? They're all selfish. That's pretty bleak, right? It's pretty, pretty dark. What do you think about it? Is he right? I think he is. I think he is. I think almost all of us begin or at least start coming to God from a place of need or want. Or we don't come from a place of just worship or just simply acknowledging God for who he is. Almost all of us come to God from a place, from a sense of desperation, right? You're not the person that you want to be. You've got a pain in your marriage. You've got a pain in your life. You're, you're here today because you've got a problem, right? There's sickness or hurt or loss of some sort. And you come to God. Let me tell you, that's smart. <laughs> that's really smart. It's really good. You ought to do that. It's right. But is it from a pure heart? Hmm? from a pure motive. I've seen so many people. Here's why this matters. Because I've seen so many people over the years, as, as my experience as a campus minister and now as a pastor, who they come to church when they got a problem, right? When they got cancer, sickness, depression, their marriage is failing, and once they get the help they want, they're gone, right? Why were they coming? Only because they had a need. It got met, now they're gone. 
On the other hand, I've also seen many people walk away from God, not because they got what they wanted, but because they didn't get what they want. Their prayer wasn't answered in a timely fashion. Their life didn't turn around how they hoped. An offense grew in their heart at God, and they jettisoned their relationship with God. Some left when they got what they wanted. Some left when they didn't get what they want. But neither party, neither kind of person was just there for God. Just to get Him. Just to be in a relationship with Him or to love Him. They proved, unfortunately, that Satan was pretty right. And sometimes, the only way to know how you would answer Satan's question, the only way to know what your motives for serving God really are, is to be plunged into darkness. See, will a man, will a person serve God for nothing? Only way to know that is when you feel like you're getting nothing from God, not receiving from God, His presence in there. You may be saying, Morgan, you're making it sound like this is the place I want to be and go to, like it's some vacation spot. No, no, no. Man, I hope you never go there. I don't want to be there. Don't want to. I know you don't either. But if it comes, if this happens, how will you handle it? Hmm? How will you handle it? What will you do? Well, let's ask. What did Haman, the writer of this psalm, do? Haman did what Job did. He stayed in relationship with the God he couldn't control, that he knows was bigger than his brain, even though he appeared to be getting nothing out of it. Even though Haman is raging, who's he raging at, right? Who? God, yeah. Even though he's complaining, who's he complaining to? God, yeah. Even though he's bitter, who's he bitter at? God, yeah. He prays his darkness, doesn't he? And he proves Satan wrong. He really did serve God in a way for nothing. But here's the beauty of it. Oh, because Haman didn't quit, because he persevered, because Haman clung to God in the dark night of his soul, God did something amazing in his life. Who was this guy? Hmm? Who was he? Who was him on? Well, what does this superscription tell us? Maybe you caught it at the very beginning. It says this psalm, Psalm 88, is a psalm of the sons of Korah. It's a masculine or a song of Haman the Ezraite. The sons of Korah were a group of worship leaders in the Jewish temple who wrote a number of beautiful songs and psalms that are in the Bible. And back in 1 Chronicles 6, Haman, we see, was a songwriter under their leadership. Which means this, that Haman actually got something out of serving God in the end, though he couldn't see it. You ask, what was that? Well, let me ask you, whose, whose life are we talking about this morning? Hmm? Come on. Whose song are we, in a sense, singing, right? Whose life has been an inspiration to billions of people over thousands of years? Not yours. <laughs> Not mine. Not mine. It's his. It's his, right? I mean, can you see? Because he didn't quit. Because he showed his quality. This darkness, the darkness grew him into something literally unstoppable. His song can't be stopped today. Himon's song and his story keep going and going. And his darkness has become light for us. My favorite place in all literature, I know, I see a place that captures this is actually near the end of Return of the King. And as Sam and Frodo are on their way to throw the ring into the fire, Sam realized he wasn't going to make it, that he and Frodo would likely die, and he was going to die doing what he had to do. And this little part captures Sam's moment. It says, but even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned into a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, as the will hardened in him, and he suddenly felt through his limbs a thrill, as if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel. 
that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. And church, let me tell you this. If you'll commit to serving God, no matter what, in the end, if you will hang on in the darkness like Job and Haman and even Samwise Gamgee, you too, you too, you'll be turned into something unstoppable. Oh, something made of stone and steel that no despair though you feel it, no weariness though you bear it, that no endless barren miles though you trod them can ever subdue. You'll be turned into a great heart, a lion heart, unstoppable. Your darkness will be turned into light. You say, Morgan, that sounds really good, maybe preaches good. I'd like to believe that. How can I? Uh, fair question. It's because of this. The last thing the psalm gives us shows us how to become that kind of person. Number four, by seeing resurrection faith. As the psalm nears the end, the writer puts out a series of four devastating questions which are honestly shattering, and they go like this. Let's look at them. He asks, do you show your wonders of the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? What's he saying here? He's saying, oh God, I feel like your rejection of me is absolute. I'm laid in the grave like a dead man and your face is totally hidden from me, totally turned away. Now, we know that even though Haman may have been feeling this, it wasn't true, was it? Because on the one hand, God did something great in Haman's life. God's face wasn't totally hidden. While Haman didn't feel God's presence, God was working. But that's not the only reason we know why what he felt here wasn't totally true. There's actually another reason why we know that the pain and darkness Simon was experiencing was only partial and why you can know that what maybe you're going through today, what you've gone through in the past, what you'll inevitably face in your future isn't a total and complete rejection by God of you. No. There's a way to know your darkness is actually brighter than you think. You say, where's that? Look especially, look at it up here, especially close at the final question in verse 14. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Does that question sound familiar? <laughs> it ought to. It ought to. Does it remind you of another man's final question, cried out also in darkness? It should. Matthew twenty-seven forty-five and 46 says this. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening here? See, Jesus, on the cross, the only perfect man who ever lived, the only truly righteous servant of God, the only man who could ever say he loved the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, even from a pure motive, was being plunged, not into partial but in a total and utter darkness. There was a darkness without, the scripture says, but there was what was worse, a darkness within. The Father, whom Jesus had known for all eternity, now turning his face away. And as he did that, the Son took on himself all the darkness, all the rejection, all the forsaking our sins and evil deserve. See, none of us have truly loved God for nothing, but Jesus did. And look what he got for it. He bore our penalty, took our darkness, so that his darkness could become our light. You say, well, where is that? How does his darkness become our light? It's beautiful. 
like this. In the end, what happened to Jesus? Hmm? What happened to the son that was rejected and cast out and abandoned and laid in the grave? What did the father ultimately do? He resurrected him, didn't he? He brought him back to life. The tomb was empty, right? Why? So that the father could ultimately fulfill after centuries and answer the questions of Psalm 88. God resurrected the son so that to the question, oh God, do you show your wonders in the grave? God could answer, yes. Do their spirits rise up and praise you? God could answer, yes. Oh God, is your love declared in the grave? God could answer, yes. Look in Jesus' grave, my child, and see. Oh God, is your faithfulness declared even in destruction? God could answer, yes. Oh God, are your wonders known in my place of darkness? God could answer, yes. The Father did it. So when all us Himans ask, why, Lord, do you hide your face from me and reject me? He could say, oh, my child, I haven't rejected you and I never will. I have one son I rejected in your place to bring you back to me, to show you what light can do and that light will shine in your darkness. See, Jesus' prayer, his cry of darkness was met with the ultimate silence. So that when we feel God's presence is hidden, we can look at Jesus, look at his resurrection, and have faith that every kind of death we die and every dark thing you face today will in the end be brought to a place of resurrection. You may say, I don't feel like that. I don't feel God is working in my life. Let me ask you, did him on? Hmm? Did Job? Did Jesus? No. But was God working all along? He was. Even in total darkness. Why? The same reason he's working maybe in your darkness today. To bring about light for you in the end. Church, don't quit. Keep fighting no matter where you are. If you'll do these things, pray authentically. Receive this deep wisdom. It will prove your strength. Prove your strength. And in the end, you'll see a resurrection. You'll come out as gold. You'll come out as gold. You know why I love this? I love Christmas time. Because it's all about hope. It's all about hope, isn't it? Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. But in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It's beautiful. There's hope for us there this morning, church, as we pray and close. Oh, Father, we come now to you in Jesus' name, thanking you even for this cry of darkness. Well, there's so much that's been planted there for us. Help our hearts to reap now what's inside it. Lord, I'm praying for us as a church, no matter that even it's a holiday season, we're going through the motions perhaps, we're going to stores and shopping and holidays and parties, yet many of us carry a deep darkness and sadness. And Lord, I'm praying this morning the hopes and fears of all the years will be met and spoken to and lifted this morning now. If you're here today and you say, you know what, I'm just, I'm walking in darkness somehow today. I feel it in my soul, my circumstances. Would you just raise your hand Oh yeah, so many of us, so many of us. The very presence of these prayers shows us, Lord, you know our frame. You know how men are, how women are, how people are. But Lord, we thank you today as we have our hands raised, we lift our souls to you. That we know that even the people in darkness can see a great light. We see you, Jesus. And I'm praying today for encouragement that, that we would pray our fears, pray our pain, pray our emotion. We wouldn't just post about it. We'd actually pray it and take it to you. 
Lord, would you meet us now? We lift our burdens to you. Maybe it's just a burden for someone else or a spouse or a child or a parent or a loved one. It was really just going through it. Lord, would you meet them? We look to you, Jesus, in your resurrection. It's proof that even in darkness, we see light. In Jesus' name.